be with you this morning. Uh, really, really is. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And giving up your pulpit is not a small thing, uh, especially to your brother. He's in a profoundly vulnerable situation because I know more about Josh than most people in the world. And I will bless you with not, not sharing what I know. Uh, but I'm uh, one of the greatest pastors that I know anything about, and that's the absolute truth. I learned more about Josh from Josh about pastoral leadership than I have from anyone, and very grateful for his influence in my life. One of my favorite Christmas songs is really one of the most depressing songs that I know. It's called Happy Christmas by John Lennon. Are you aware of the song? Uh, it's actually not a, a, a Christmas song. It's actually a protest song written during the war, uh, but the the title, the the first line of the song goes simply like this, and so this is Christmas, and what have we done? Uh, Another year older, over, and a new one just begun. Uh, Doesn't that uplift your spirits? It's horrible. Um, And I always think about it this time of year, because this time of year is we're rolling into the new year, and we really want a clean slate, a fresh start. The reason why we want a clean slate and a fresh start is because somewhere, no matter how good this year has been, somewhere about 2019, there's been some disappointments. There's been some things uh, that you'd like to do over. The person that says, I have no regrets, is either ignorant or not just that self-aware. We all have regrets. I have things that I really wish I could have done different in 2019, which leads me to a question that Scripture answers this morning. Before we start over, before we resolve to do new things, what if you had a moment, maybe in a side room in this church, with with God? And you were to ask Him this question. Okay, God, really, I just want to know. what, Where do I stand with you? But more specifically, God, what's my status right now? What is your status with God? We got into church early, and and I was grateful that you had visitor parking, so I pulled into the visitor parking, and my son, seven-year-old son, was in back, and he looked out the window, and he said, Dad, why does it say center parking here? I looked out. It wasn't center parking. It was was senior parking. Yeah, I was parked in the wrong... And I looked around, and sure enough, there were a lot of other sinners out there parked beside me. Um, I wasn't the only one. But I identified with that. Here we are, rolling into a new year. But I just feel this weight of not tons, but maybe a several small bad decisions. So what, again, what is your status with God? Where do you stand? And Scripture isn't ambivalent without that. It's not a mystery. It's very explicitly laid out, very clear in Romans chapter 8. But to understand where we stand before God, you have to first understand where we stood before God in the past tense. And so I want to spend a few minutes just previewing really what the gospel is, starting with Romans 1 and ramping up into Romans chapter 8. So you can feel free to do that with me. I'm going to look at four or five scriptures starting in Romans chapter 1 as we kind of lead up to Romans 8. And then we're going to spend our time in the first three verses of Romans 8, trying to understand what is our status before God. So here's where we begin in Romans chapter 1. Here's where we stood before God, verse 18, 4. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a very heaviest, heavy verse, maybe the heaviest in all of Scripture. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. It just means everyone who ever lived, everyone ever born, 
They have a sin nature. They enter into that sin. And when they enter into that sin, they provoke the anger of God. And that anger ultimately leads to God's wrath. There was an ancient orator by the name of Cicero. And he told this story about this young man um, who wanted to be king. His name was Damocles. What he really wanted is to be king. And so the king says, okay, I'll teach you what it's like to be king. And so he put him on the throne and he surrounded him with all the luxuries of what it meant to be a king, all the privileges of being royal. And then as he was sitting there enjoying it, he took a long sword and he hung it above his head with a horse's hair. And his point was, sure, all the kingdom comes with all of these privileges, but at any moment there's internal struggles and external struggles. And so he's really teaching him just to be content because really all of life you have this sword that can at many times end your kingdom. Really, in American culture, um, we have this idea that we have certain unalienable rights. They're self-evident to us. And that's true in a political sense, it's true in a philosophical sense, but sometimes that can translate into this, that God, this life that I have and this income that I have and this marriage that I have and this family that I have, these are rights. And in reality, they're not rights, they're blessings. And the people who live in the culture, even not even aware of it, all the time they're living, ignoring God, just really enjoying what they think they deserve, all the time the wrath of God hangs above their head with a thin thread. And what it mentions in Romans 1, Romans 2 actually spells out more explicitly. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Listen to this. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is made to lead you to repentance? So the reality is, is that all the blessings that someone has, even an unbeliever has, the reason why God gives them those blessings is not because they're rights. It's that every time an unbeliever holds a newborn baby or sees a sunrise or a sunset or a beautiful fall day, that was intentionally designed by God to lead them to repentance. God's ambition is not to break somebody down, but rather through his blessings, initially at least, to lead them to repentance. And look what he goes on to say in verse 5. This is Romans 2, 5. But because of your hardness and impenitent heart, you are, look at this, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath of God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So every person who lives, every day that they live and a breath that they take when they're ignoring God, they're actually writing bad checks against God's wrath. In other words, they're storing up wrath. And one day God will unleash for all eternity the decisions that they've made in this time here on earth. So that... That sword hangs over all of our heads. And since we could not do anything about it, here's what God did. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Here's the next hinge in the book of Romans. This is Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So all that the law did, God's standard, is let us know that we couldn't keep it, so we couldn't make ourselves righteous. And so here's what God did. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although through the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that's a tremendous mouthful, but what he's saying is, look, you were in a, a stuck position. That was your status. Living your life as if what God was blessing you with was things that you deserved, all the while the wrath of God is hanging over you. And so what God did, so since we could not solve that problem, is he took all the wrath that he felt toward our sin, all the anger God felt toward my sin and toward your sin, and as he was unleashing it on us, he redirected that wrath and transferred that payment from us onto Jesus. And this is the idea behind that loaded word propitiation. It's not just that Jesus died as an example, that he died for our sins. He did. But everything's loaded in that word for. The word for just doesn't mean he died instead of us. That's true. But it actually means the anger of God was satisfied because all the anger of God was put on Jesus and not us. It's a remarkable thought. It means that as you're sitting there in our royal privileged place of being a human, with God's wrath hanging over us, the thread breaks and the wrath of God falls. But all of a sudden, you're not in the chair. You're watching it happen and the sword falls and it lands through Jesus and not us. And he takes God's wrath for us. Well, here's what that does for us. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 5. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. We're working our way up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Watch this. So they no longer be enslaved to sin. This is shocking. So not only does Jesus take our penalty for us, but at the same time, he frees us from the slavery to sin. We're no longer obligated to sin. It's a remarkable thing that God does. We exist with the wrath of God above us, and yet he comes and intervenes in that situation, and Jesus takes the punishment for the sin or the guilt, the, the sin that we had committed, Jesus takes the punishment for. That puts us in a position where now, Romans 6, we are in Christ, so not only are our sins forgiven, but we have been given the power not to sin. Which leads us to this question, if we have that power, why do we still sin? And we'll turn to Romans chapter 7. This is the whole tension of Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 24. Here's what Paul says in Romans 7, 24, talking about the tension between the flesh and the spirit inside of him, which says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Which, okay, brings us back to our question. Here we are, all the things that we've said about the book of just reviewed in the book of Romans, if you're a believer in Christ, they're true about you. The punishment for our sin we'll never take because Jesus took it for us. We now have been crucified, we understand, with Christ, which means we have the resurrection power to no longer be slaves to sin. And yet with all of that truth and with all that intellectual knowledge inside of us, we still we still sin. And if you're feeling this, like I always feel at the end of the year, comes that, that tinge or maybe even a wave of guilt. God, 52 years old, I was not planning on being this sinful for this long. Why, why don't I have victory over these sins? Again, God, what is my status with you? Romans chapter 8 gives us 
what the Spirit does. It's overwhelming. But let's look at three realities here, three realities about our status with God. Here they are. Number one, here's your status with God. You have, as a believer in Christ, if you are one, a no condemnation status. That's it. God does not condemn you. Look at Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are the ones that are in Christ Jesus? Remember, that's a reference right back to Romans chapter 6. We've been crucified with Christ. And we know we've been crucified with Christ because Christ was crucified, Romans chapter 3, because he was taking the wrath of God that all Romans 1 and 2. So all this builds up to Romans 1. This is why Spurgeon called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. It all builds to this point where he says, look, if you are all these things, if you are in Christ, you have a no condemnation status. God does not condemn you. God does not condemn you. Um, In our culture, status is a very, very important thing. You know, this time of year makes us think about what we own, what we want to buy. Someone else gets something. We think, should we buy that or should we save for that? We're always thinking about things and what we should acquire. But the reality is, and especially true for men, I don't really want to be known for my um, possessions as much as I want to be respected for my giftedness, right? Can you identify with that? If I die and I don't have the most toys, that's okay, but I just want to have some respect. I want to have some status. And in middle school, that's sitting at the cool table. Um, In high school, that may be being a good athlete. In college, that may be being smart or gifted or the student who shows the most promise. And then you start getting out in life and you start identifying yourself and comparing yourself with other people and you work yourself into a position that compared to the other people in life, uh, we have a certain status. Which makes you wonder, who's granting all this status? Right? Here's the funny thing, though. When, When we die, all that status goes away. So the thing that you are most known for in this life, profession, giftedness, looks, intellect, in in a wisp, in a moment, James 4 says it's like a vapor. It's just all gone. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because the people in this life who have the authority to grant you that status no longer have that authority in the next life. No cool tables in heaven. No subdivisions where one's better than the next. No upgrades on the trim of your truck. Sorry, that's an Arkansas reference. That's where I'm from. It's all the same. I grew up in a very, very loving home. Very, very affirming home. And my mother was always affirming me, telling me I'm special and uh, just an unusually good person, uh, all these type of things. So every Sunday I'll, I'll preach and she watches online and I'll get a text that says that was the greatest sermon in the world, which, which would really mean something if Josh wasn't getting, you know, the same text with more exclamation points. I don't know that I'm just guessing uh, that's the case. But all this affirmation, but you see, all this status that I have in home, you know this, it doesn't carry out into the rest of the world, does it? 
I can't take that status with me and say, you won't believe what my mom thinks about me. I mean, imagine if I want to go get a PhD at the, one of the you know, most reputable universities in the world is the Sorbonne, the University of Paris. And imagine if I want to go in there, but I know I don't have the grades to get in there. I know I don't have the reputation to get in there. I know I don't have the test scores in there. I know that I'm not going to get in on merit. So, of course, I take my mom with me. And they say, why should we let you in? I was like, oh, okay, yeah, hey, mom, go ahead, tell them. You won't believe, is that enough? Because she's got more. It's, I'm a special person. Now that, that won't work, will it? Because the status I had in my home was real. I had real status. I mean, it was literally one of her favorite children. So I had all this status inside the home. But that status does not translate to any other context. I can't get that to get me a better job or to improve test scores. Because once I change locations, that status, that authority she has to grant me, that status goes away. And all that we think makes us valuable and great and wonderful in this life, it evaporates in a moment. The greatest thing that can be said about you, or maybe the greatest thought that you could have at the end of this year, is that you have a no condemnation status before God. And the God who never dies and never changes, who speaks an eternal word, does not condemn you. And that will carry you in this life and into the life to come. So what's your status? Here it is. Don't don't ignore this. It's God's word. It's not being humble and self-deferential not to acknowledge this. It's true. God says this. You have a no condemnation status before God. God does not condemn you. God does not condemn you. God does not condemn you. Now, why does God not condemn you? Well, here's the second reality. Here's why he doesn't. God does not condemn you because the Spirit sets us free. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? Well, the law of sin and death just simply says that um, everyone who sins dies. This is what God promised to Adam and Eve, that when they sinned, they would die. It wasn't an immediate promise. It was an eventual promise, but everyone who sins dies. It was true physically to Adam and Eve, but there's a spiritual parallel, and that is that when we sin, there's a spiritual death that takes place inside of us. It's inevitable. Everyone who sins has a spiritual death. That spiritual death has a consequence as the wrath of God rests on us. And it's just true. Sin is a rot to the soul. But even that, that's a law. It it can't be changed. It's It's a law. There's a greater law. And it's the law of the Spirit. It says, look back at verse 2, the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus From the law of sin and death. Let's keep reading verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, why was the law weak? Well, the law wasn't weak itself. It says weakened by the flesh. What the law did is it expressed our inability to keep it. And so, what does it mean that we are set free in the Spirit? Well, it means a couple of things we've already said. It means a couple of all that, first of all, we are... We are set free from the penalty of sin. I was preaching, I think the second sermon I ever preached, my grandfather was in the audience. I was um, 
maybe 18 years old. And I was warning everybody uh, who was a believer that God was going to punish them for their sins. But my granddad grabbed me aside afterwards and he says, look, God does not uh, punish the believer for their sin. I was like, well, granddad, I think it's pretty heretical. I was trying to correct him. But he was right. What he was, the point he was trying to make was is that Jesus took the punishment for that sin. And there is no double jeopardy in God. I will not be punished for in my future what Jesus already did for me in my past. He took the punishment for that sin. Does God discipline a believer? Absolutely. He disciplines us, corrective discipline, instructive discipline. But we are set free from the penalty of the sin. That's the power of the Spirit. But it also means not only from the penalty of sin, but we're set free from the power of sin. So the practical application of that, going all the way back to chapter 6, is that we don't have to sin. You're not obligated to sin. No one is forcing you to sin. A practical application, a little mind trick that I use sometimes is I try to procrastinate sin. Have you ever used that mind trick? You get tempted, okay, I'll, I'll sin, but I'm going to do that tomorrow. and Maybe tomorrow you can put it off one more day. That's just a silly mind game, but the reality is, is that as a believer, what makes me distinct from an unbeliever who has to sin, they cannot not sin, is that I don't have to. You don't have to. You're under no obligation to sin. Every sin is a willful choice. You don't, you don't have to sin. The power of the Spirit has set us free from the penalty of sin, and the power of the Spirit has set us free from the power of sin. But although we're set free from the penalty of the sin and the power of sin, we are not set free from the presence of sin, are we? Even if you are not chasing sin, sin is chasing you. And it's haunting us. In fact, go back and read Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Look at what it says. Paul summarizes the way we feel so well. This is Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Someday your good days and your bad day can be the same day. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in me and my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. So here we are, these people that are set free from the penalty of the sin. We're set free from the power of the sin. But as long as we are in these human bodies, we are, we are not set free from the presence of sin. These bodies are bent toward sinfulness. It will always be the case as long as we're human, as long as we're alive, as long as we're on this earth. It just is what it means to be human, is this propensity toward sinfulness. And if you're struggling with sin this morning, I want to offer you some encouragement going into 2020. Here's the encouragement. The encouragement is, first of all, there's a sense in which I hope you're struggling with sin. I don't hope you're sinning. <laughs> But I hope you're struggling. Because if you're not struggling, it could be evidence that you've given up. You've acquiesced. You've laid down. And there's no longer a fight because the reality is you've just, you just lost the will to fight sin. So a struggle with sin is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is really inside of you. And, and somehow we get this weird idea that a fight for sin is actually sin. No. 
the fighting of sin is evidence that the Spirit of God is actually inside of us. And so in a weird way, even our fight for sin makes us raise our minds and hearts and hands and voices to God and praise Him because the fight demonstrates the fact that the Spirit of God is actually inside of us wanting us to do what's right. The unbeliever, again, doesn't have this struggle. They just give in to sin. But we struggle with sin and are actually, in a strange way, encouraged by that sin for this reason. And that is the presence of the struggle is the evidence of the Spirit. The presence of the struggle is the evidence of the Spirit. The Spirit, flesh, tension, we want to win, not lose. But the fact that we're even having that tension inside of us is evidence that the Spirit of God is inside of us. The presence of the struggle is the evidence of the Spirit. And here's why that's good news. Because Romans 8, 9 says, if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His. How do we know that I have the Spirit? Well, lots of reasons we know they have the Spirit. But one of the evidences is this fight inside of me. The reason why I I grapple with sin is because the Holy Spirit of God is inside of me. And listen, if you have the Spirit inside of you, then you no longer have condemnation above you. The presence of the struggle is the evidence of the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit inside of you, you do not have the condemnation above you. So again, you're alone with God. You ask Him what your status is. And the response from Romans 8.1 is, you have a no condemnation status before God. God does not condemn you. Why? Well, because the Spirit has set you free. And here's another reason. Here's the third reason, third re- or the second reason, but the third reality. God does not condemn you because Jesus condemned the sin. Verse 3 again, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on this flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. I'm going to go back to verse 3, what it says. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God does not condemn you. Why? Well, God does not condemn you because the Spirit sets us free. But God does not condemn us also because Jesus condemned the sin. Again, what Jesus condemned, we've already said there's no double jeopardy in God. What Jesus condemned, he'll no longer hold me accountable for. Um, There's a great book I just found in a used bookstore about 10 years ago. It's one of my favorite little history books. It's called The 15 Decisive Battles of the World. So it argues that uh, the world is turned by great wars, but these great wars have been turned by some small battles. And in these small battles, it may be just like a 20-minute decision or it may just be an hour decision, but that little battle turned the war and that war turned the nation and those nations turned history. It's really, really interesting. And the one the author says is the greatest happened from June 2nd to 4th, 1942. Some of you know what I'm talking about. This is the Battle of Midway. The Japanese were 
trying to get to the Midway Islands. We just called them the Midway Islands because, as you know, they're midway between the Japanese coast and the Pacific coast. The intelligence was gathering that they were actually trying to come to California. That seems strange to us, but they had the, certainly the naval power to do it. This massive navy the Japanese were using to creep across the Pacific. And the battle raged, and there was no leading indicator that this was a given. It's going to go down to the wire. And the Japanese were using two different tactics. They were taking our destroyers and our aircraft carriers, and they were coming with their planes and dropping bombs on them. But the problem with that is that you would get so close to the destroyer that you'd get shot down yourself. So another thing they were doing is they were taking their planes, not dropping bombs, dropping torpedoes. That they could drop from a distance, fly off, but that torpedo, of course, would go underground, and now it's a verb. They would torpedo the ship. They would would blow it up from the inside, hopefully to crush the hole or blow up the hole. And one really shockingly indecisive moment by the Japanese general, they decided at the last minute as the planes were actually on the, the aircraft carrier getting ready to take off for another run, they decided to, to take off the torpedoes and put on bombs. So they did that, they went and made their run and just as those planes left, some Americans were coming out of the clouds. They were actually running low on fuel. And they knew they had this one last chance to take out this aircraft carrier. And when they came down out of the clouds, they saw something they could not believe. That in the rush to remove the torpedoes, some of you know what happens. They, they left them on the flight deck. So these, these fighters came out of the clouds and they saw all these torpedoes, all these explosives just laying around. And in a moment they knew that they did not have to take out that aircraft carrier. All they had to do was hit those bombs. And, and if they did, the enemy's own torpedoes would take them down. This is exactly what they did. In the end, the war was won because the enemy was destroyed with its own weapon. This is exactly what Jesus had done for us. Now listen. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not kill Satan. He still lives. He didn't mute Satan. He still speaks. He didn't maim Satan. He's still proud, still very much alive. Why didn't God do that? What God did instead in his own mind for reasons that we don't not fully aware of or couldn't really wrap our minds around us is he, he didn't do that because he wanted to use us to gather to himself a non-condemned people, people with a no-condemnation status, who in the way they lived with victory over the power of sin, even though they had the presence of sin, and when they died showing victory over the penalty of sin, he would show all of this no-condemnation, and he would use the enemy's weapon of condemnation back on himself. So at the end, God destroys the enemy by dealing with him, the own weapon of condemnation. So listen, very practical. Listen to this. Next 72 hours or beyond, you'll have the temptation to feel condemned. Do you know what condemnation is? It can be a, something we feel is guilt that motivates us not to sin. That's good. But remind yourself when you can feel condemned by the enemy that really what that condemnation is is the precursor of what Satan will feel for all eternity. He's condemned. He's condemned. So what's your status? Well, here it is. God does not condemn you. 
The Spirit sets you free because the Son has condemned the condemnation. Happy New Year. Father God, we are grateful for your love for us, Father. God, we just come to you in ever-loving wonder and praise and can't imagine what you would do for us, so undeserving, so unworthy, and so overwhelmed by our own grief and our own guilt. Father, the grief and the guilt we want to, as 1 Corinthians tells us, leverage us to have genuine repentance that leads beyond just sorrow to all the way to, to true change. And God, we thank you that, that beyond resolve, we can actually respond to your spirit. God, we praise you for that. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, who in his own flesh condemned the condemnation.